I think sometimes we forget about this, but John the Baptist fulfilled God's plan through prophecy just as much as Jesus did. Though their lives diverge, both Jesus and John the Baptist preached the same message. And what is that message? I think we see it at the end of this section that Paul just read for us, that we are to repent and believe in the gospel. And that message comes through two different men, and let's look at the brief intersection of their lives now. We see, first of all, in verses 1 through 8, that John the Baptist called for repentance. He came as Elijah, we see, to fulfill prophecy. Isaiah foretold the coming of John. We see this in verses 2 and 3. I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 where Isaiah has been speaking to comforting God's people, speak kindly to Jerusalem, call out that her warfare has ended, her iniquity has been removed, she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And how would they know that this would take place? Verse 7 of Isaiah 40, The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. There is a, uh, in, in this context, there is a reminder that though the people had been sent away into exile and though they were being punished by God for their idolatry, that he was going to restore them and there was going to come one who would be their deliverer, their king. After all of the human kings had failed, after all of their leaders had been corrupt in one way or another, after all of the people had gone astray into idolatry sooner or later, God was going to purge them of their idolatry, restore to them their land, give them a godly leader, and the sign of that was going to be the coming of one out of the wilderness to make ready the way of the Lord. And this passage in Mark's gospel is saying that John the Baptist is that one that God had appointed to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. John appears in this passage like Elijah as a true prophet. 2 Kings 1 and verse 8 said, Elijah had a garment of hair and a leather belt about his waist. And Malachi 4, 5 says that God would send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So for the people of Israel, when someone appears in the wilderness, dressed just like Elijah, proclaiming the coming of one who is going to bring remarkable signs and show forth the power of God, if they had any association, any remembrance of their history, they would have said, this is the Elijah, this is the prophet that God said was to come to declare the coming of the Messiah. John went into the wilderness like the prophets before him. I think often we think of of the prophets as proclaiming God's word just in the cities, but for much of their ministry, they are in the desert proclaiming God's word, living in the desert, being driven into exile, being under threat from various rulers and kings and the religious system of their day. Uh, For example, in the time of Ahab, Elijah has to go live by the brook. And then he has to go to a foreign city and be provided by God in the house of a Canaanite widow because the king and the prophets of Baal are seeking him out in the land of Israel trying to kill him. And here's this man, John the Baptist, in the desert proclaiming the word of the Lord. 
down by the Jordan River. He's living in the wilderness, according to verse 4. He appears in the wilderness. He's eating wild food, verse 6. His diet was locusts and wild honey. I think that this is mentioned not just as a fact of curiosity, not just to make some of you squirm and say, I would never eat that, but instead to point out the fact that this wasn't just he went into town and went to a restaurant and had lunch and then went back out in the wilderness. He lived out there. Jesus has a comment on this in another of the gospel. He says, John appears living out in the wilderness and, and, and you have one idea about him and then I come and you have another idea. You think that I should be in a king's palace and John was in the wilderness and everybody has all these ideas about, all about these things. But if you look to the Old Testament, this was the behavior of some of the prophets. The parallel as well with, between John the Baptist and Elijah and others of the prophets is that he was accepted to some degree by the people, but rejected by the kings. Why do I say rejected by kings? Because verse 14, which other gospels explain in more detail, John was taken into custody. King Herod arrests him and eventually puts him to death because he is afraid that John is going to gain such support among the people that he's going to lead a rebellion and that he's going to lose his power. And so he is accepted by the people. They're coming out, verse 5, and listening to his message and responding to his message. But the religious leaders, as we see in another gospel, want to go through the act. But John says, don't just do this as a show for the people. And the kings, particularly King Herod, reject him and seek to put him to death. John came as Elijah to fulfill prophecy. John went in the wilderness like the prophets before him. John prepares the way for the Messiah as he proclaims out of the wilderness the way of salvation. And he baptizes those who come as a sign of repentance to receive forgiveness of sins. We see this in verse 4. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is something that's important for us to understand. Sometimes we have seen, when I say we, sometimes in professing Christianity, there have been groups that have said you have to be baptized in order to be saved and that baptism is what saves you before God. That it is, according to Catholicism, the thing that washes away original sin. That it is, according to certain other uh, Christian denominations, the idea that if you're not baptized, you're not truly a Christian. They were coming for baptism as an outward sign of the inward work God was doing in their hearts. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Well, it depends on your definition of the word necessary. Because if you have somebody who says, I follow God, but I'm not going to do any of the things God commands me to do, including baptism, then there's a high likelihood that that person doesn't actually know or follow after God. So is baptism necessary for salvation in the sense that if you don't do it, you're probably not following after God? Yes. Is there something, in the words of a really weird country song, something about the water? No. That's not the thing that makes you clean before God. It is the work of the Spirit that cleanses you from sin. Baptism is a picture that shows the work that God has done, identifies you, as one of God's people, shows people the cleansing that has already actually taken place. And that's a really important distinction to understand. Why was John calling the people to do this baptism? Because baptism in Old Testament times 
and at least by the time we come to the Gospels, was associated with repentance and obedience and humility and all of those sorts of things. Why do I say that? Well, those who received his baptism in the muddy Jordan with humility like Naaman confessed their sins. Now, that wasn't Elijah. That was Elisha. But remember the issue that was going on with him? Here's a general of the people who comes and wants to be healed of his leprosy. And God has a little Israelite girl who's been captured as a slave who says to her master, hey, go back to Israel where I was captured from and you'll find a true prophet there and he will help you. And he gets there and he expects to be received like a king. (coughs) And Elisha sends his servant out. And the general has a test of pride. Am I going to be treated like someone who in humility is saying, I have nothing to offer and I deserve nothing and I will obey humbly? Or am I going to be treated with all the pomp and circumstance and recognition that I deserve as a powerful leader of the people? So Elisha sends out his servant and he's offended by that. And then Elisha says, hey, go bathe in the river there. And he's like, that's a muddy, dirty river. I don't want to get in that. I don't know how many of you have ever gone to a river and it's covered with algae and full of muck or a, a pond, something like that. And somebody says, all right, if you get baptized there, that's a true mark of you following after God. And you're like, why should I do that? I've got a shower at home. I've got a pool in my backyard. I could go to the beach. Why would I go there when I can go here? That's exactly the response that Naaman has. He has to humble himself at the pleading of his own servant and say, look, the way to God is through humility. The way to God's favor is through humility. It's not through pride and bringing him what I can offer to him and all those sorts of things. And so in the same way that Naaman was willing to be baptized as a sign of humility and in association with that comes to a true faith in God, the people were coming, confessing their sins and saying, yes, I want to be baptized in expectation of the one who is to come as a sign of God's forgiveness of sins, as an outward sign of the cleansing God is giving me because I'm trusting in the one that he's bringing to save me from those sins. Now, it's not a one-for-one for for our experience today, right? Because Jesus has already come. We're not being baptized waiting for his coming in the next few days or weeks or months. We are baptized often sometime after that inward cleansing has taken place and we've come to have a relationship with God. But we see a close parallel with what's happening here in the book of Acts. People are trusting, they're getting baptized, they're being added to the assembly, And it's a symbol of their connection with God and the work that he's doing in the world. John is pointing them to the coming one as the object of their faith. What does he say in verse 7? After me, one is coming who's mightier than I. I am calling you to pay attention to God, but I'm not the focus. This is a really important distinction because in many religions in the world, they have held up people as the focus of God's work instead of God himself. Some, some religions say, pray to saints. Some religions say, revere a prophet. Some religions say, here's a holy man, pay attention to him. John says, it's not about me, it's about the one that God's sending. Pay attention to him. He says, I am not fit to stoop down and untie his sandals. 
And then he says in verse 8, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What I am doing is anticipating the thing that he will actually and has the power to do, which is what you really need. You need to be baptized by the Spirit into the work that God is doing in the church, anticipating his kingdom, cleansing from sin, being joined with God's people. That's what you need. What I'm doing is looking forward to all of that. I'm getting the way ready. I'm saying, Here's a hill and a rough place and rocks. We're smoothing it out. We're saying, the king is going to come. Will you be a part of his kingdom? John was a great servant of God, but he's not the one in whom we trust. The messenger is not the king. He prepares the way for the king. How does the ministry of Jesus parallel and supersede the ministry of John the Baptist? We see just like with John the Baptist, Jesus also called for repentance. We see that in verse 15. But first, he is baptized as the Lord who was to come. Verse 9, he came from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the beginning of his ministry. Now, the Gospels have a little bit different um, order in which some of the stories are recorded in the unfolding of the Gospel. And that's not because one is true and the others are false. They arrange the details of the story of Christ's ministry in different ways for a specific purpose. We're talking about this in the Sunday School Hour. Sometimes we feel like the Bible should be laid out everything in order, like an encyclopedia that's telling the history of a particular event. First, this person arrived on the shore of America, and then a few years later, this group arrived, and then a few years later, this group arrived. We want it to sort of be laid out like that. <clears throat> but even as we were looking at in the book of Micah, he is talking about what's happening right then. He says what's going to happen way down the road when Jesus comes. Then he says what's going to happen within the next hundred years. Then he talks about what God's going to accomplish after they're out of captivity. And he's jumping around because that's how we use language. We can say something, have a, a flashback. We can have a foreshadowing. We can talk about right now. We can go tell another story. It doesn't have to be in precise chronological order for it to be true and for it to be accomplishing the purpose God wants it to. And so Jesus comes down from Nazareth. This is the beginning of his ministry and he's baptized as a sign of the beginning of his ministry in the Jordan like the people, not because he was sinful, but to mark sort of the commissioning and calling. This is the moment of the transition, the shift from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus. Immediately coming up out of the water, he sees the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. We see here in this verse the triune God all present in a single moment in the calling of the Son to do the work God had sent him to do, that the Father had sent him to do. How do we know that God was pleased with this? How do we know this is what God wanted to happen? Because there's a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And in the other gospel accounts, it says some of the people heard the voice and some of them thought it was a sound of thundering. And there's this question, what did this mean? What's going on here? But this is the calling and the commissioning, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so John the Baptist is out in the desert coming as Elijah to fulfill prophecy. Jesus is similarly coming, called, commissioned, sent by God to fulfill prophecy. Oh. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness like the prophets before him. What should we expect to happen with Jesus? Jesus is going to go out in the wilderness. Verse 12, the spirit impelled, sent him out into the wilderness. Why? He's being tested like the people, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. 
He's in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. The people are led into, into sin earlier as well uh, under the leadership of Moses. As they're coming from Egypt, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the commandments from God. He's up there a long period of time. The people are tempted by Satan and they give in. And they say, we don't know what happened to Moses. Make us a God that we can see. And Aaron says, sure, give me all your gold. We'll make this idol and you can worship God by means of the idol. Moses goes back up on the mountain for 40 days to intercede before God saying, don't destroy the people. So there's a parallel in that Jesus experiences the testing that the people experience and says no to the temptations of Satan, which are outlined in Matthew 4. And Jesus also intercedes for the people as Moses did after their sin. And so Jesus is both the one who is tested and the one who prays on behalf of those who are tested. We see another glimpse of this in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, right? We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays for the disciples, for the, the testing that they're about to experience. And so just like John is Elijah, Jesus is Israel and Moses, tested, interceding, fulfilling the pattern. But where they failed, Moses gets angry, doesn't get to go in the land. The people commit a violation of the second commandment, many of them die. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years when they refuse to go in the land. Where they failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds in the wilderness. And Jesus does this alone. And I think sometimes we read the passage in Matthew 4 and we think Jesus just had three temptations and it was like a five-minute deal and then it was done. But I think Mark gives us the sense that this was an ongoing process throughout those 40 days. Matthew records the three most significant ones. Perhaps there were others, or perhaps those happened over the course of the 40 days. But Jesus is alone, without food, in the desert, being tempted, alone with the wild animals. Then the angels come and minister to him, and his testing is over. He has passed the test. He's been commissioned and called and baptized. He's been tested and passes the test. Is he worthy to be the one to do these things? Yes. Then his ministry begins. What does he say? What's his message? He proclaims out of the wilderness the way of salvation. His ministry follows and builds on that of John the Baptist. After John is taken in the custody, uh, into custody by Herod, Jesus begins his ministry and he goes and he preaches and teaches the people. Both of them are pointing people to God. But Jesus is the one who comes and says, the time has come for God's kingdom. John says, it's really close. Jesus says, it's now. John says, one is coming. Jesus is saying, basically, I've come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Where do we see this phrase elsewhere in Scripture? We see it in the book of Galatians. In the fullness of time, God sent, his for, sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. In uh, other places, like in the book of Acts, it says that at the right appointed time, God sends his son to die for sin. So in the right moment, according to God's plan, he sends his son. His son appears and says, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. What are you going to do with it? The way of entrance into God's kingdom is to follow the king. And people have all sorts of these arguments about theology like, 
was Jesus actually offering the kingdom because the kingdom clearly didn't happen or did he offer it and then he took it back because the people rejected him? We don't need to get into all of those ins and outs in this moment. The focus of this passage is Jesus comes as the king, says, I'm going to establish my kingdom. Are you going to be a part of it? Micah 6.8, we looked at in the Sunday school hour, says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Jesus is saying you can't do those things until you turn away from yourself. You believe the message that I am proclaiming. You believe in me and you follow after me. You're not going to do justice if you're not following the God who is a God of justice. You're not going to love mercy if you don't know the God who is merciful. And you're not going to walk humbly if you're standing here in pride saying, I'm going to go my own way and you can't tell me what way to go. I'll come to you any way I please. That's where a lot of people in the world today are at. They'll say, you know what? I'm going to hold up my charitable acts in the community. I'm going to say, God, I have done charitable things in the community. I've helped out the poor. I've volunteered for these things. That's the thing that gets me into heaven. One that became kind of more popular in World War II was a lot of soldiers said, I have served my country well, so that's what gets me into heaven. And they did a noble and an admirable thing. It parallels what Jesus talks about as a, as a man willing to lay down his life for his friends, usually, but even for strangers. That's a remarkable act of sacrifice. But it does not save people because we are not Jesus, we're not perfect we can't ever do enough good things. Even sacrificing ourselves for another person is not a good enough act to get us into heaven. So it can't be charitable things we do to other pe- for other people. It can't be faithful service for our country. It can't be religious rituals. Why do I say that? Because as we saw in the book of Micah, God said, you could bring me thousands of burnt offerings and gallons and rivers of oil and even give up your own children and they, their death the death of your animals, the sacrifice of all of your wealth, that's not enough to make you acceptable in my sight. What I want is something you can't produce in yourself and only I can do. And the way to receive that is to turn from yourself, believe in the message that Jesus is the one who is coming, and turn to him and follow him. And then, as we see in the rest of the New Testament, God gives you the power to actually be able to do those things that he calls you to do. Micah said it was to love, to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. The summary of the law that Jesus says in another place in the Gospels is to love God with all your being and love your neighbors yourself. We want to start with that. I'm going to love God with everything and love my neighbors myself. But you can't do that until you've repented and followed after, begun to follow after God. Because you can't do it on your own. We can try and try and try, and you can be really nice to the people around you for, depending on who you are, a week, a day, a month, and then you're like, you know what? I am done. And that moment when you say, I am done, you failed. What you need is not your own efforts. What you need is the one who did not fail where everyone else had failed. He succeeded, and that was Jesus, and he's the one that we need. So as we look at these verses... We see how the ministry of John the Baptist and of Jesus are similar. Both fulfilled prophecy and parallels with the work that God had done in the history of his people. John is the prophet who was to come. 
Jesus fulfills all these prophecies of where he was to be born and all these other sorts of things, but also all these parallels with the experience of God's people. Both were in the wilderness. John lived there. Jesus goes there for a time to experience testing. Both proclaim the gospel. There's one who's coming. I have come. Repent and believe. (coughs) Repent and believe in me. The kingdom of God will be here soon. The kingdom of God is at hand. Very similar message. The same message. But they're also different. John is the forerunner. Jesus is the one he was pointing to. John lives in the wilderness. Jesus sojourns there briefly. John says he is coming. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. What are we supposed to take away from this passage? The main point is, I think, Jesus' message in verse 15, repent and believe the gospel. Now, is the promise of the kingdom at hand? I don't know that we would say that it's at hand in the same way that it was when Jesus was standing right there and saying, I'm here, but it is imminent. Jesus has gone, but he can come back at any moment and establish his kingdom. So in that sense, is the kingdom at hand? Do we need to be ready for it? Do we need to be prepared to meet the king and follow and serve him? Absolutely. But suppose that you have, like these people in these verses, you've confessed your sins. You've been baptized not to save you, but as a sign of repentance and faith. You've committed to follow Jesus as one of his disciples, as we'll see even in the the next part of the chapter next week. What does this have to do with you? You say, I've already repented, I've already believed the gospel, I'm set. Well, following Jesus is an ongoing thing. You're not a followed. You're supposed to be a follower. You're supposed to be following. Sometimes we want to put Christianity in the past tense. I believed. I prayed. I trusted. God doesn't want that. God wants, I believe, I am praying, I am trusting. And so some of that is because we've emphasized sort of a point in time. We've said, hey, here's an aisle in a church. Walk down the aisle, get to the front of it, pray a prayer, check the box, move on with life. It's not a biblical model. It's actually popularized by a guy that I'm not sure was a believer named Charles Finney in, I think, the 1800s. He's like, if we get people in a particular emotional state, say the right words, get them to do emotion, then we can add them to the number of our fellowship and they'll be convinced that they belong with God. Walking somewhere doesn't make you a Christian. Saying words doesn't make you a Christian. What shows that you are actually a follower of God is if there's an ongoing relationship with the God you claim to follow. And so what does that look like practically? I think it means wrestling with some questions that potentially are raised by this passage about the difference between the experience of John the Baptist and Jesus and you and me. So here's one of those questions. Will you only follow Jesus if it's comfortable? John lived in the desert eating bugs and wearing uncomfortable clothes. I don't know how many of you have ever tried on a camel hair shirt, but it was not intended to be the most comfortable thing in the world, right? There were people who wore shirts of hair as a sign of penitence at various points in history. It's not like this is a really soft fabric, buy it because it's really comfortable. It's he's living out in the desert. What's out in the desert? Camels. Kill the camel, skin the camel, put his skin on as your clothes. He's not going and feasting. He's not getting steak. He's not getting a really nice 
fresh salad. He's not getting any of those things. He's going and picking bugs up off the ground, maybe dipping them in honey, but he couldn't always probably find the honey, and he's eating that. He's probably only finding honey here and there. It's not like he's going to Costco and buying a big jug of it. and You know? So, John, uh, John the Baptist knows the calling God has on his life, and he acts to carry out God's plan immediately. God says, go, he goes out in the desert. Sometimes for us, we're kind of waiting for the perfect moment, right? We want it to be a sunny day and a shaft of light to come down through a cloud and and someone just stands there and says, will you tell me in exactly the phrase you expect every last thing about the God of the Bible? We don't tend to look for those moments in a gas station parking lot where there's broken glass over against the wall and it's a, we're in a rush to try to get to the next thing. And Are we waiting for the perfect moment? Are you going to witness to your neighbor if it's really hot outside because it's the middle of summer? If your food's getting cold because you go out and talk to them and you're like, hey, this was warm, I wanted to enjoy it, but it's more important for me to have this conversation with him. Uh, what if that conversation with your neighbor or with some other person that you encounter interrupts your goals for the day? You're like, I'm going to do this and this and this and this, and I've got this task to accomplish for work, and I'm going to drive to this place, and I've got to pick up this thing. But then there's an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus, and you're like, no, I am not going to get my to-do list done. If, I, if it's uncomfortable, if it's at the wrong moment, are you still going to take those opportunities to serve God? Are you going to open up your life to people, even if you're tired or it gets expensive? Sometimes we want to sort of like, I've done my work for the day, and now this is me time, and I'm going to go sit in my man cave or my comfortable living room. Uh, I'm going to eat my supper. And, you know, God, I can do stuff for you during the day, 9 to 5, but after that, that's my time. Don't interrupt it. And maybe those opportunities to minister to people get expensive. Not just in terms of time, but also in terms of money. Are we going to say no to those at that point as well? I think it's really easy for us to get very ingrained in this attitude of comfort that says, if it's not what I want, if it deviates slightly from the way I think it should be, then I'm not really interested in it. Maybe it's talking to someone who looks different from you, that you don't think is going to be interested in the message that God wants you to share with them. Maybe it's... um, Someone with, which, with whom you already have a bad or difficult relationship, and you're like, why would I possibly talk to them about Jesus because there's already all these problems? And sometimes that's exactly the person God wants you to talk to. But we want things to be comfortable. We want things to be easy. Will you follow Jesus? Secondly, if following means rejection, persecution, or even death. John lived like Elijah and was hated by the rulers and religious leaders of his day. Most true Christians have the experience of John the Baptist and of Jesus, not of Moses living the life of ease in Egypt before he gets kicked out of the palace. If you follow Jesus, you will have people hate you sooner or later. And if you're never disliked for being a Christian, there's one of two possibilities. You're not following Jesus at all, or you're not following him very well. If you go your whole life and you never share the experience of John the Baptist and Jesus, you don't know him or you're not following him very closely. This is sobering because our American Christian experience we think is the norm, but it's the exception. Both 
geographically, like if we look at other places around the world, and historically. The man that we have visited us from India a few weeks ago was talking about the fact that they're trying to pass laws that if you convert someone from, Christ, from um, various religions to Christianity, they can take all your stuff away, throw you in jail, a mob can kill you, and the government will do nothing to intervene because it's illegal to convert to a different religion. And there are some states where he lives where that's the case. In fact, states where we have people that we know who are trying to, to minister. Their lives are at risk. Will you follow Jesus if following means rejection, persecution, or death? There's a degree to which if we're not willing to experience the rejection or the genuine persecution, as much as we like to be, um, I'd be ready to die for you, Jesus. Think about who said that and what happened right after that. And Peter had to humbly say, I wasn't ready. And I think I'm probably not ready. I think most of us, if we examine our hearts honestly, we're not ready because we're so in a mode of, I want people to like me, that we're unwilling to do what God calls us to do in various moments because it's going to rock the boat. It's going to make difficulty. I don't, uh, we don't have to be belligerent and obnoxious, right? Sometimes the best thing that we need to do in a given moment is to pray for someone instead of say, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus. I'm not saying that you have to go just obnoxiously like say it over and over and over again, particularly to someone in your family or a close friend or someone around you that you've said it to a bunch of times. In that moment, you probably need to pray for them. I'm talking about all the other moments God gives us where we're like, I'm not going to talk to the cashier at Speedway because... I don't know. I'm going to spit in your Slurpee. I'm not going to do this thing here because we come up with all these reasons that seem really important about why we can't do this. God calls us to follow him even if it means rejection. Will you follow Jesus or will you point others to you? John pointed people to Jesus and never forgot that it was about Jesus, not about John. And that's more clear in some of the other Gospels, but it's clear even here. If he has the humility to say, I'm not worthy to take his shoes off before he goes and gets baptized, then he's recognizing he's underneath Jesus. He's not above him. In our society, we're really concerned about how people see us, particularly online, but sometimes even in person. And we're really focused on that. What people think about our clothes or our houses or the way that we look or, or any sort of things. Are we more concerned about opportunities for ministry or about whether people perceive us in a particular way? And you're like, John the Baptist is not a role model for fashion. No, he wasn't. I'm not saying everyone needs to put on a camel hair shirt and go eat bugs. But there's a possibility that God's calling some of us to do that. And if we're like, I could never do that, I would never do that, are we open to the things that God's leading us to do? What does this mean for our church? Are we going to follow Jesus if we have discomfort? Uh, been having problems with the air conditioners, right? Let's say we said, we don't feel like we have the money to fix them, and so we're not going to do that for a while, we're just going to live with it. Would you still come to church? I'm not saying we're going to do that. I'm just saying, 
And I know there's some people, if it gets really hot, we would probably, you know, do something else because I don't want people to get heat stroke. But I'm just saying, like, if that were the thing that were, is that the point at which you'd say, I'm not going to gather with God's people? What if we said, hey, we're going to meet at somebody's house this week? And they're like, I don't want to set up chairs. I don't want to drive there. They live 20 minutes away. That's really far. Uh, whatever. What if we said, hey, we're going to do a different hymnal, but we're only going to buy 20 of them. If you had to share your hymnal with three other people, would, would that be the point at which you say, I'm not going to do that? What, it, what would be the point for each of us at which we say comfort is more important to me than gathering with this group of people that I'm committed to? Not saying we have to go out of our way to be miserable. I'm saying comfort can become an idol really easily for us here in the United States. Will we follow Jesus if following him means rejection for our church assembly? If other people think that we're crazy for doing this thing or that thing, right? So there are people who would say, this is the way that churches do things. And if you do this thing over here, why in the world would you do that? If something that we did meant that we lost tax-exempt status, if something that we did meant that people around us just say, why in the world are you doing that? Along the same lines as what I said about us individually, if we collectively are not willing to deal with questions or the loss of government favors, if we say, I would never consider that, even if the clearest path forward to what God wants us to do involved losing those things or enduring those things, I think we need to stop and examine our hearts. And I think this is one that we need to consider. Will we follow Jesus only if people know the name of our church and it gets bigger? Or are we happy to see lots of fellowships start in lots of places? I've been talking with different people about missions, and I was thinking about um, what Simon said, or about what the Jewels have said, or the Cuthbertsons, or different missionaries we've been acquainted with, right? So they'll say, hey, we think there needs to be a church over here, right? And we are so convinced there needs to be a church over there that some of us are going to go there, we're going to start a church there. So it's not First Baptist Church of this village that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's we're going to have one there, one there, one there, one there, one there. And that raises all sorts of questions. Who's going to lead them? Who's going to pay for it? How's this going to work? God can work out all those details, right? So let me ask it this way. What if, what if I were to say to you, I am convinced that God wants us to go plant a church? We're like, but we're only 50 people. How can we possibly do that? Well, it would take some dramatic, it would take some creativity and some dramatic reshaping of our expectations for what that looks like. But how do churches get started? They get started with little groups of people gathering together and having an impact on other people around them and saying, hey, I'm gathering with God's people here. You want to be a part of that? Or more typically, hey, come meet Jesus. Okay, you've met Jesus. You need to gather with his people. You can come with me. You can go over there. Go somewhere. Is it only a church if it follows the pattern we're familiar with? Go to a building, stay in a place, got a big parking lot, that sort of thing. That's a church. Now, there are people that have done crazy things with the whole house church thing, right? They're like, dad's the pastor, mom's the deacon, the kids are the members, whatever. That's not, I think, the biblical model, right? And so 
the church is supposed to be more than just a single family. Like, we're not supposed to just do church in our house and call it good. We're supposed to be around other people because they need us, we need them. Uh, we get in all sorts of strange trouble if we're just very isolated in our own little thing, right? But sometimes we look at a church that has like 3,000 people and we're like, well, that's a really good, successful church. When the church at Jerusalem got over several thousand people, you know what God did? God sent persecution and scattered it, and they started churches in Samaria. Philip goes out in the wilderness, meets the Ethiopian eunuch. He goes and starts a church in Africa, and then other people come back. They still start a church to the north in Antioch. Then they go over west, and they start a church on the island of Cyprus. There seems to be a pattern in history that when people don't go to where God wants them to go, God ends up sending them there anyway. Uh, and so again, I'm not saying God's calling us to start a church at this moment, but I'm just saying it's easy for us to have the mindset that says, well, our church has to be 300 people and then we can go do it. It doesn't. I'm not saying now's the moment, but it could be next year or the year after or next month. I don't know. I'm just saying we just get so stuck in the mindset of saying this is the normal pattern. Or we say this thing that we start has to agree with us on every last point. And then we look at the New Testament and we see there's the Corinthian church and they had a whole lot of problems. And there's the Ephesian church and it was a little bit different from the Thessalonian church. But God commended the Thessalonian church and God said, even you Corinthians, you got a lot of mess, but you're still following after me. So let's sort out the trouble and move forward, right? We want everything like neat and tidy and here's a pastor and a couple of deacons and some people that are going to show up every week. We don't want it to be like that person was supposed to do nursery and they didn't show up again. Or people are in the church and they're still having problems with gossip and anger and greed and whatever else. They're supposed to fix all that and then come to church. God does his work by the, um, we went and picked up a lot of rocks when we were down in Missouri visiting family, and a lot of them have sharp edges. You take a bunch of rocks, and you grind them together, what does it do? It knocks off the sharp edges. We want that to happen without this, right? God uses the bumping of our lives together and the admonishing of his word to knock off the rough edges and make us progressively more like Jesus, It's kind of like, I want my kids to obey, but I'm never going to tell them no. You might tell them no 10,000 times, and they're finally like, okay, I'm not going to do the thing you keep telling me not to do. Or you might say, this is the way to do it. And the 500th time, they do it. And then the next time, they don't do it again. Are we willing to go through that sort of heartbreaking, hard work, lots of sweat and involvement process in connection with the church? Sometimes we just want things to be neat and tidy. We want it to be about us. We want to be able to have something we can be like, look at this that we have built. John the Baptist didn't have that attitude. He said, not about me, it's about him. And God can sort out all the details and God can fix all the problems. And, and that's what he wants us to do. So, I'm not saying life has to get drastically harder in every way and everything has to change for us personally or for the church as a local church. But I feel like with all the different things that we have going on, 
talking about what we're going to do with the building over here, talking about what God wants us to do individually. I think we have to ask ourselves, are we walking after Jesus in a particular way because that's what everyone we're familiar with does? Or what other churches that we know do? Are we doing it because we're 100% convinced it is the most biblical thing for us to do personally, collectively, at this moment in time? Um, We have a six-week-old kitten that we brought home with us from Missouri. And I was walking with him in the yard last night, and he stayed so close to me that I stepped on him like three times. And you couldn't even sometimes tell like if it was him or me as it was getting dimmer, right? Because he's right there. While we were in Missouri, my brother-in-law's dog gets out, and he has to spend an hour chasing after her in the woods in the dark because she didn't want to come back. I don't know if she's chasing something or whatever. Here's my point. Be like the kitten, not the dog. Not because cats are better than dogs, but because we should be stuck so close to Jesus that people can't tell where Jesus stops and we start. We shouldn't be so far away that people are like, are you guys together? Like the dog that's running away. Whatever we decide today or in future gatherings of the future of our church as far as logistics and buildings and all that i don't want you to hear what i'm saying and say this is about because our pastor wants us to do this thing about our property and if we don't do that then free i'm not saying that i'm saying we could be here for the next hundred years we still need to wrestle with these things that i'm raising from this passage god put us here for a reason to fulfill his plan and like john the baptist That involves humility. And unlike John the Baptist, your name's probably not going to get written in a book that people read several thousand years later. But we should be okay with that. If God's work goes forward, it doesn't matter if anybody ever knows our name in a history book. If God's work goes forward, it doesn't matter if one person ever comes alongside and says, hey, good job. Because the thing that we really ought to care about is if Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's all God's looking for. He's not looking for big. He's not looking for flashy. He's looking for faithful, simple obedience. We need to do that work well, even if it's hard, because the gospel message is the most important thing in all the world for people to hear. So repent and believe in the gospel. But if you've done that, what are we specifically doing to help other people do that? Because that's what God's called us to do as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths from your word. Help us to wrestle with them and follow you well. Help us to know what that looks like. Help us to really search out your word so we know what it looks like for us individually so we can talk about it with one another. Help us to encounter your word and be changed by it, not just glance at it, say, eh, and go on with life. We pray this in Christ's name.